From Harold Washington to Harold's Chicken and everything in between and beyond, Sociology is the exploration of Chicago culture, history, legends, stories, and fiction through a myriad of discussions with Chicagoans themselves. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of Sociology. Now, as of this recording, Lori Lightfoot is currently the mayor of Chicago, but it was Harold Washington that made history as the first black mayor of the city when he was elected in April 1983, becoming Chicago's 51st mayor. Harold Washington was born at Cook County Hospital and raised in the Bronzeville neighborhood. He attended DuSable High School and went on to Roosevelt University, where he served as a student council president. He also went on to the Northwestern School of Law. It doesn't get much more Chicago than that. Harold Washington also served in the Illinois House of Representatives as well as the Illinois State Senate. He also represented Illinois in U.S. Congress, representing the Illinois First District. So it's clear before he was even elected mayor, he already had a history of leadership and stewardship. On this episode, I talk with Jeff Spitz. Jeff Spitz is a professor at Columbia College Chicago, where he serves in the cinema and TV arts department. He's also an Emmy Award winning documentary filmmaker. Jeff is going to tell us about his time in his early 20s when he came to Chicago with a lot of ambition and how he had the great privilege of interviewing Mayor Harold Washington for his documentary, The Roosevelt Experiment. So without further ado, let's get right into it with Jeff Spitz. I just want to explain I'm in a uh, Capital One cubicle in L.A. Oh. I'm from LA originally, and yeah. I'm wearing a shirt that's kind of a tribute to my dad. Okay. Um, it's uh, not an advertisement for a real team, but my last name is Spitz. My dad is a uh, former football coach, and he was um, the one who took me to see the 1966 Rose Bowl, where okay. these guys, the UCLA Bruins, played, and they were an underdog, and they beat Michigan State. Mm. So. It was an unexpected thing and a very exciting um, triumph for UCLA. My dad went to UCLA. I wound up graduating from UCLA. And um, I have fond memories of this little kid being, you know, only uh, six years old. And my dad put me up on his shoulders and climbing down like 50 rows over the backs of the benches in order to get down on the field to celebrate the victory. Wow. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. That's a beautiful uh, experience. You know, I'm happy that you was able to experience that as a kid. You know, yeah. those was the good old days when the Rose Bowl was always the packed pack 10 versus the big 10. You, you know? got it. And now it was all one conference. <laughs> I, I, I got to play in it. It was the pack eight. We didn't have 10. <laughs> okay. Pack eight. Okay. Yeah. That was before my time. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Pack eight. Yeah. You know, and now UCLA, as you know, USC is part of the big 10. Uh, oh yeah. You know, yeah. all because you know, trying to get the media, the media rights, and all of that. You know, trying to get right. people pie. Um, so yeah, you you say you you uh, you're from California. You know, you say you lived in L.A. Correct. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I live in Chicago now. That's what right. I thought. Right. Right. And so it was like 1983. Was it when you said that's when you first had caught wind of Harold Washington? Yeah. Uh, when. Um, he was not somebody really on my radar at all. Mm -hmm. I was in LA, but I applied to go to graduate school to the University of Chicago. Okay. And, and I was surprised when I got the acceptance. But during that period, while I was interested in going to graduate school, I heard a radio anecdote. I was driving scripts around LA. I was working for producers. And one of my jobs was to be in the car to drive a script and deliver it. Back then, you did that by hand. If people were in a hurry, they sent a driver with a script. Mm. So I was listening to a radio anecdote from Paul Harvey. And Paul Harvey had a noon broadcast. He's a very famous broadcaster. Uh -huh also based in Chicago. And he said that uh, today, um, today's noon story is about four African-American college students in the 1940s who made a pact to support each other through thick or thin for their whole lives. And one of them said, I'm going to go into real estate. And another said, I'm going into entertainment. And a third one said, I'm going into politics. And the fourth one said, someday I'm going to be the mayor of this city. Mm. And Paul Harvey, he liked to use the dramatic pause. So I'm waiting to see what, what's next. And he says, today, the first one is Dempsey Travis, Chicago's most successful African-American real estate man. 
The second one is Oscar Brown Jr., who has entertained people all over the world and performed on Broadway in his own shows. The third one is a five-time congressman from the same district where they made that vow 40 years ago. And the fourth one is Harold Washington, first African-American mayor of the city of Chicago. I got chills. I was, I was just really moved by this. Yeah. So I went to the UCLA Research Library to look up Harold Washington. I wanted to know more about him. And I found before out Google, that, before Google. <laughs> yeah, I literally got in the car. I went to UCLA Research Library, and yeah. he was in the listing of a book called Who's Who in Black America. And it's a true story. I looked him up, and before, uh, you know, I just happened to think that would be the way to go. So I went through the listings, and after Harold Washington was Kenneth Washington. I actually looked at Kenneth Washington's background and saw, by coincidence, this man went to the same college as Harold Washington, Roosevelt College in Chicago. And I thought, wow, I wonder if it's the Kenneth Washington that I met when I was 12. It was a man running for city council in L.A. His name mm. was Kenneth Washington. I remembered my mom telling me to be home on a certain evening because she was hosting a fundraiser for this gentleman named Kenneth Washington. So I looked at his background, I called him on the phone and I introduced myself and said, I know this is strange, but I want to talk to you about your college days. Did you go to college with Harold Washington, the, mm. the new mayor of Chicago? And this guy, Kenneth Washington said, I, I do remember your mom. He said, wow. and yes, and nobody has ever asked me about my college days, but it was a miraculous experience. Wow. Small world is right. And he said it was miraculous because the college was mixed. He was going to college in 1945 in Chicago with Jews, Blacks, um, former um, servicemen and women who were in a hurry to make up for lost time because they'd been in the World War II. And, and they were uh, not, you know, typical college kids. Yeah. They were serious. And he said, it was a fantastic environment. And people were trying to integrate the barbershop next door. They would go into restaurants and sit down and wait to be served, even though they knew the restaurants on Michigan Avenue would not serve blacks. White and black students would try these things. And this was 10 years before the civil rights movement really got underway with Martin yeah. Luther King. When he told me this, I said, oh my God, this is really amazing. And I just got deeper and deeper into it from a distance, having never been to Chicago. Yeah, and wanting wanting to learn more. So that compound that compounded like your desire to come here. You know, well, you was coming here anyway because, like you said, you applied to graduate school here. Um, so you was gonna end up in Chicago one way or another. But it, it kind of just made your desire to hurry up and get on a plane to get to the Windy City ASAP. So so you come to Chicago, and at what point? Now I know you said um, in a previous interview you said that the Wizard of Oz is what basically started your love for filmmaking you know um what at what point when you got to Chicago did you say you know what I gotta get Para Washington in front of my camera was it like already an idea before you got here or did it you know come to that after the fact you know walk us through that part well as soon as I heard that radio anecdote I thought how cool would it be to meet these four people have mm -hmm. them tell the story uh and I started thinking about this as a documentary immediately. I was working for a producer and in Hollywood, and I actually told him what I was doing and wanted his opinion. And he said, let me tell you where this country is at right now. This is 1983. Ronald Reagan is our president. White people all over this country are getting in their cars in the morning and driving from their safe suburban communities into a downtown, rolling up their windows, locking the doors, and not even looking at what they're driving past. They don't want to look, and they're not going to want to look at a film about these people. I'm sorry to tell you, but that's the country we're living in. The people you're interested in putting on a screen, the audiences for movies are not interested in seeing them. Mm. I was shocked. Uh, but I was interested right from the jump. 
in the idea of interviewing these people. So my first day in Chicago, I had already arranged to meet Oscar Brown Jr. And he was a phenomenal personality, a very dynamic, engaging person. He was a poet and a musician and a performer. And he put together Broadway shows. And he said, I'll pick you up. Where are you staying? I told him I'm at the International House at the University of Chicago. He said, I'll be there. He came and picked me up, literally gave me a tour and took me to Chicago State to see him perform his one-man play. I think it might have been called The Great Nitty Gritty. I can't remember the name exactly, but I was really the only one in the audience. Imagine when somebody with that kind of stature in Chicago offers to take you for a tour and yeah. <laughs> takes you yeah. to see him perform a 90-minute show. Yeah. So I felt like I was under a lucky star, and I could imagine getting interviews with these people but I didn't have access to all of them. Oscar picked me up from my place and could not have been more, could, could not have been more kind and generous. Yeah. He introduced me to his daughter, Maggie Brown, and his son, Bobo, who is deceased now. But God, I never felt so welcome to any place. I certainly didn't expect all this. I thought I'm in the right place and this is the right time. And I have a theme about racial harmony in a city known for being the most segregated big city in America. And Oscar confirmed what Kenneth Washington had said. It was a miraculous place. It was unlike anywhere else because the city was rigidly segregated. We know what that looks like, it still is. Yeah. But uh, this one building on Michigan Avenue, when you walked in the doors, it was like another world. But then at the end of the day, when you walked back out in the city, you did realize that you were in this America that didn't agree with everything that was going on in that building. And they recognized the contradiction. Most of them, the guys had served in World War II and they weren't gonna tolerate being treated as second-class citizens after they fought against you know, Germany and the idea of a master race. These people actually put their lives on the line for democracy and equal opportunity. And I thought, I don't know anybody like that. They fought. Harold was a World War II soldier and a boxer. And uh, I didn't get to him right away. It took me almost a year in graduate school figuring out how I could meet people and eventually get an introduction to the mayor. Uh, I went to a couple of his neighborhood forums and watched him. And the first time I saw him open uh, the door and walk through and greet people, I realized no Hollywood screenwriter could invent anybody nearly as charismatic and electrifying and down to earth at the same time and real uh, centered, authentic as this man. And I thought, I've got to be able to get an interview with him some way, somehow. So that was really the challenge. How do you get into City Hall? How do you interview yeah. the mayor when nobody knows you? You don't have any credits or credentials. And I was very fortunate. Um, I, got a, I got good advice. I also took an internship downtown with the Chicago Reporter, which was a monthly journal on race and urban issues. And I met a lot of people and they all encouraged me. They were all really supportive, even though I didn't have any credits. I hadn't made a film before. They said, this is a great idea. Um, they, they were friendly. One of those people was Laura Washington. She was my boss, not related to Harold. But as it turns out, I wrote a letter asking for an interview mm -hmm. and I sent it cold. But I put that letter on the, the letterhead of the Center for Urban Studies at the University of Chicago. I had a professor there who ran the Center for Urban Studies and he said, I'll back you up on this. It's a good idea that you have. And sure enough, I got a call back from somebody at City Hall saying the mayor will see you. Hmm. I believe it. This was this is like a, a miracle in itself to yeah. me. Yeah. And um, I did come in to meet the mayor. And I brought with me something that I found. And I had been doing my digging at Roosevelt University, looking through old photos. And they had a uh, storage room with boxes of old photos. 
And there were interesting people who rallied around Roosevelt back in the day, including uh, Jackie Robinson, including Ralph Bunch, um, Marian Anderson, mm. uh, Pearl Buck, uh, Albert Einstein. They got him to endorse the new project. And of course, Eleanor Roosevelt, FDR's widow. So they had a who's who of advisors supporting the idea of a college without a color line. Yeah, Most colleges did have quotas. And I don't have to tell you about discrimination in higher education, right? So I was very fortunate. When I went looking for things, uh, I found a gold mine. And one of the, the most uh, glittering gold mine strikes of all time for me it was a life changer. I found a 16 millimeter film that was at Roosevelt and it showed students in the 1940s. And as I'm watching it, I also have still photos from the same place at that time. And there in the 16 millimeter footage is Harold Washington leading a student council meeting. Mm. So this was meant to be. Like well, keeps like a I transferred that 16 millimeter footage onto uh, um, a different format so I could show it to the mayor. I knew that if I got an interview with the mayor, talking wasn't going to be the, the, the thing that puts everything over for me and makes the, the process uh, smooth. I'm talking about making a film. I have to show some film. I had a nugget here. It was a gold nugget. And when I pulled it out and told the mayor, you have to see this so you can understand what I'm doing. He looked at it and he smiled that big Cheshire cat grin and laughed and told everybody to come into the office. <laughs> they got to see. Well, they came in, his secretary, his press uh, agent or officer, and they smiled and Harold just loved every second of it. And they said, wow, you were handsome. And he said, yes, indeed. And uh, <laughs> he was a trainer handsome, athletic guy on film. Yeah. I also had still photos. So I knew I had the makings of a good documentary and now the mayor was on board and he was so enthusiastic. He introduced me to other people. So I was running around Chicago physically on buses and trains, meeting people and telling them I'm trying to make a film about your college days at Roosevelt. I want to be able to interview you and then bring images forward, photos and film. And I would show people this footage that I had of college students at Roosevelt in the 1940s. And it was just so charming. It was so innocent. And no one had ever seen it. I mean, back in the day, there was no video. It was film. You would need to set up a projector, thread it with film uh, in a dark room with a screen <laughs> in order for people to see what was on that can of film. When I saw it, I just realized this is a documentary. This is great material. That archive is gold. And uh, with that, I was able to put together a funding proposal, raise money, and get on board with uh, Mayor. He was totally supportive. And when we finished, his uh, office agreed to host the premiere on the fifth floor of City Hall. Mm -hmm. I invited my parents, of course, and people who were supporting the film project, people who were in the film, and the broadcaster, WLS-TV, because that ABC station agreed to premiere the film. And so it was a magical experience and uh, I'll never forget it. I knew even then, at, I was around 26 years old, that this is really unusual. This is a life changer. Yeah. And that I'll look back on this someday, many years later, and really appreciate how special it was. And I am at that point now where I'm the age Harold was when he met the 25-year-old kid from, from LA. Wow, wow. You know, as a filmmaker, um, is as a documentary filmmaker uh, specifically, you know, chasing down people or trying to track down people to get interviews, to get that content that you know will just make your film more solid than what it already is. Like, can you explain the feeling that you had when you got word that Mayor Harold Washington of the third largest city in the country, probably at that time the second largest city of the country said yes I will receive him I will see him you know it's like this it's kind of like you manifested it from the jump when you heard that radio uh show mention him you know 
how did it feel to go from idea to tangible proof that it's coming together? Like, what did that feel like for you as a 26 year old filmmaker in a new city? Well, it was uh, exhilarating to know that the mayor's people saw value and meaning in what I was doing and encouraged me like others. They felt the same way that it seemed like everybody I met was expressing. This is needed. This is timely. This is now. And I was feeling the same way. That's why I wanted to do it. I was sickened by the sight of the racist election in 1983. And I wasn't even in Chicago. I saw a little bit of it on TV. And as I researched Harold from afar, I saw more of it. And I thought, this is disgusting. This is like Selma, Alabama in the 60s. And it dawned on me that I was too young to be part of the civil rights movement. But here's my opportunity to share in a new experience with people who believe in the same ideals. And now we're putting them into action in this huge city. And they're seeing that this film that I want to make is part of that. It can help bring people together, not drive them apart. And I felt incredibly validated. I felt exhilarated and scared because mm-hmm. now I'm going to have to actually do it. Yeah, there's no time. You know what I mean, and, yeah. and I and I don't didn't didn't have the money. I didn't have the skills. I didn't have the equipment. I was not a trained filmmaker. I was a guy with a background in in production, insofar as working on Hollywood productions and even TV programs in LA. But you know, when you come from the factory town, people assume you must know everything and be great at this stuff. The reality is you're a factory worker in LA. I was like putting a bolt onto a nut. I was a guy driving scripts around or I was observing uh, people making films. Mm -hmm. And that's a very slow, tedious process that I couldn't stand. I needed to try a different way because in LA, the hurry up and wait aspect of filmmaking, the Hollywood model, the tradition is extremely tedious. I knew that wasn't for me. So it's very exciting for me to be able to move faster in Chicago and have people validate an idea that I had and want to participate in it. But it still meant I had to figure out how to write a proposal, how to raise money, how to hire a professional cinematographer and work with other producers, writers, creative people, and then go into post-production and work with an editor. And there's a lot of aspects to filmmaking that people don't see. They just look at the film and assume, oh, this guy made it. No, lots of people had a hand in this. I had a lot of help. And I feel like uh, I was under a lucky star from the jump. Harold was probably the brightest of all the stars in Chicago and the one who made this real for me. So when he validated the idea and then I met him, I was over the moon. I didn't want to leave the office. I felt like I should just be working here. Yeah, I should yeah. get the camera and I should stay here and film. Yeah. I was able to schedule the interviews. And every time he would give me 30 minutes in his schedule, we would wind up with an hour mm. or more. He, mm. he, he loved the break from the hardball battle test that was going on every day in the real politics of, of the city of Chicago. He got to take a break from that, be with somebody who was not scrutinizing him, who was not a media journalist uh, trying to trap him or maybe let's say challenge him. I just wanted to elicit his experience of college and the days when he was crossing the color line and what it felt like to be someone from the South side of Chicago in college, downtown, crossing the color line, meeting all kinds of people and becoming the student council president. He loved it. He would lean back and regale me with this time in his life. And you can see it in the film. He, he really enjoyed talking about that. Now he's not the only person in the film. I interviewed a lot of his classmates and he's not the subject of the film, but he's the reason that I made it. He's yeah. the reason that um, all of us wanted to be on record 
saying we believe in democracy. We believe in fairness. We believe in people getting an equal opportunity. We believe Chicago could be better. And I was new to the city, but I was very much caught up in that Washington campaign spirit and in the idea of everybody having a chance now to participate. Yeah, yeah, you know, um, through my readings, that 83 election was very ugly, um, very ugly. You know, a lot of racism that was spewed. You know, it's, it's like the uh, the old machine did everything it could to prevent Harold from getting elected. Um, but destiny is destiny. And he was elected despite all of it. Um, and he became the first Black American, African-American mayor in the city of Chicago. And you said that he was the president of student council at Roosevelt University some decades earlier. He also served in Congress. Um, he served in Congress and things like that. And, you know, you mentioned fairness. Harold Washington has always been about fair, you know, not just sound bites, but he's literally always been about fairness for all. And it seems like when you have someone like that, that truly believes that in their spirit wholeheartedly, it seems like that energy is contagious amongst their cabinet or, you know, their, their team. And it seems like that's really the reason why it was so easy for you to make this film, because you was dealing with a genuine spirit. And that spirit was contagious amongst his staff and his staff welcomed you. And, you know, you mentioned he'll give 30 minutes, but it will always end up being an hour because it was like a break for him. It, it was leisure, you know, it was leisure. It was enjoyable, you know? So it's like, not only were you creating a film and, you know, knocking something off of your objective list, but you was providing a moment of, you know, solace for, you know, a political titan in one of the biggest political cities in the entire country. You know, um, it's, it's kind of like, it, it all gives back, you know, like that energy, you know, it just gives and it takes and it just all comes together and marry just one beautiful thing. So, you know, he gave you the names to certain classmates to interview and, you know, how to find them and all of that. What was that process like? So how long did it take you to make this film? You said it took you about a year to get in front of Harold Washington, right? So now you're in front of Harold Washington, you have these other names. How long did that entire process take before you got to the finish line? I was, I was like three years. Mm. Um, three years. I got the idea in 83 okay. and uh, I was able to start doing some filming in 84. And we had a premiere in 85. 85. And that was on the fifth floor of City Hall. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, it it uh, went by fast, but it was hard earned and it was a real grind. Um, the uh, idea that there's overnight success in anything is always a myth. And uh, I, <laughs> I was all over the city trying to meet people. And people were so good to me. Uh, so for a guy from LA coming to Chicago to make a film and do it with real people was a very strange, um, you know, kind of uh, encounter for people. They would say, really? You, and you're living there? Usually uh, yeah, it's the other way around. Like people go to LA to make films, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think a big part of this was it was rare, uh, very unusual for people to encounter somebody doing this. And it was interesting, good conversation starter everywhere I went. So uh, it was a nurturing thing for me. It was also my way of getting to know a new city and what a way, you know. So it took a long time because documentaries really do require access and trust. And you usually can't get access without trust. Somehow you've got to earn trust to bring a camera in people's lives. Um, if you just say, hey, I want to film you for an interview, people can say, what's it about? And who are you? And if they don't check, they're fools. <laughs> they really ought to check and look into that person who has a camera. Because a camera can be powerful. Uh, a documentary can be very powerful. And uh, Harold's camp was very careful about giving people access um, because there were saboteurs and there were people from the uh, you know, opposing camp 
the city council was divided 29-21, they call it council wars. Harold was very concerned about people undermining him and for good reason, they were, and they were good at it. Yeah. And they thwarted him in his first four years in office to a great extent, they blocked everything he wanted and his appointments uh, were held up. Appointments by the mayor were a rubber stamp, no brainer for the longest time until he became mayor, right? So um, the, the process of making it in the time involved was a time in my life where I realized that I was meeting people I really was interested in and I was starting new relationships. And I liked these people. I admired them and I enjoyed their company. Uh, and I hope they enjoyed mine. And I wanted to see them again. And some of them became lifelong friends. Uh, so I, I realized that I'm not just making a film. I'm not here to check the box, did the documentary, move on. I realized this is a way of life for me. This is a way I want to uh, work for my future. And this is comfortable and seems to be who I am, what I'm about. I didn't know that beforehand. I hadn't done anything like this. So I was finding myself as I was finding my way in Chicago and finding relationships with people and building trust and gaining access. I was defining what I wanted to be when I grew up. <laughs> I was doing it and feeling yeah. like I found it. This is me. Mm. That's beautiful. Three years of, you know, just you finding yourself and, you know, just laying that foundation and groundwork for what become your life's purpose, your, you know, your life's journey. Um, and what better way to do it in such a huge way by making a documentary on a very, um, very important university in Chicago, Roosevelt University. And, you know, just kind of how Roosevelt University brought together all of these personalities and people that will go on to do great things in this world. Um, it's just, it's no coincidence. It's, it was destiny for it to happen this way, like you said earlier in an interview. You know, so you, you finished the, the film, uh, you finished the Roosevelt experiment, you know, um, Harold Washington is still mayor. And what, what was your steps after you finished the film? Did you take a step back and breathe? Um, did you, uh, how did your relationship with the mayor continue after that, um, well until, you know, his second election? How did that play out? Uh, right after the film was, was finished, I started to think about how it's going to be broadcast. Back then, you didn't have a lot of choices. PBS, that's where documentaries live. But WLS, the ABC TV station in town, knew my co-producer who had worked at WLS, she brought it to the program manager. He said, we want it. We want it for Black History Month, February. Uh, we, we think this is just great. When we had that uh, date, that air date, that gave us a lot of leverage. So we contacted our friends at City Hall and said, this is gonna premiere on WLS on such and such a date. They said, well, we would love to uh, celebrate and have a special uh, launch. City Hall. I said, well, then that's the premiere. It'll be a month before or three weeks before or something. Uh, they said, we'll look at the schedule. We started planning. So we were planning what we now would call distribution. I, I was thinking about where am I going to show it? Well, with a broadcaster like WLS, that answers the question from the first broadcast. With a launch or premiere at City Hall, that gives you exposure to a lot of people. Anyone interested in city politics would want a ticket to that, would want to come. And it's not a venue, a movie theater. It's a privileged space. So that gave us a lot of leverage, as I said. And I understood, even at that point, that that leverage that a documentary can give you can be used in the exhibition, in the distribution, and in the future of your career. That you're going to want to network with people. You're going to want people to learn about your film and you're going to want them to use it. I understood all those things quickly because of an experience at City Hall with Harold Washington and WLS and the funders. Remember, I had to raise money for this. I didn't have any money to hire a cinematographer. So I raised 50000 and it didn't come from one person, two people, three people. It came from like 12 different sources, uh, different companies, including AT&T, the Playboy Foundation. Uh, mm -hmm. Uh, uh, gosh, 
um, I think uh, uh, First National Bank, uh, what, what was it called? First Chicago back in the day, it was called First Chicago Bank. Um, just different corporate entities agreed to support it because they wanted to be closer to the mayor and they wanted to promote harmony in the city. They saw this as a positive. Yeah. So all this is to answer your question about what you do next. I actually started to realize that what this process does is build relationships and that these relationships are going to help in your distribution and in raising awareness about this new entity in the world called the Roosevelt Experiment. If it was done without any help and with no forethought, he would have a film at the end of the day with no one to watch it. So the strategy of making a film became making relationships, making connections, and making a distribution strategy that does make some sense. It turns out the WLS TV station said other owned and operated stations in the ABC family, New York, Detroit, Houston, these urban centers would probably air this show. And I thought, wow, that's an idea that never occurred to me. I went to New York and sure enough, the program manager from New York said, yes, we'll run it. Detroit, I didn't have to go to. I could call and say, Chicago and New York are mm -hmm. running this. And they said, yeah, we'll do it too. Well, the owned and operated stations are in the biggest markets and they all ran the same show. I thought, well, that's really great. What validation. It's not just of interest in Chicago. It, I understood I understood the color line is a universal issue. It, I mean, it extends beyond the United States. Yeah. Unfortunately, racism is not limited to the US, right? So I just realized I had a universal story that was very specific in Chicago, but it was told in a way that people could relate to it. If they cared about education, they cared about the discrimination that some people faced, and if they cared about civil rights, and equal opportunity anywhere. They would recognize the thrust of this story and young people who fought and sacrificed and lost loved ones and friends, uh, all in the name of democracy. It would, naturally, they would find this in, of some interest. Uh, so that's the answer in a longer form of how you build a community around a film and awareness spreads from word of mouth back then. There was no social media, no internet, right? The other thing I learned in Chicago was how the journalists jumped at the chance to write a story about a film on a topic that's close to their beat or in their beat. Not film reviewers. Like I didn't think about who's gonna review this and say what kind of film it is. I thought maybe somebody will find this so interesting they'll write a feature story about it. And people were interested in it. So we, I started to learn a lot about marketing and the distribution side. I didn't make any money doing this, by the way. The ABC owned and operated station sounds like a big deal, right? They must have paid a lot of money. No, they actually just agreed to air it. Right, right, right. <laughs> At that time, was still I, I good, you know, it's like, because now you're having to put all these ads. There's no YouTube, you know. Um, but yeah, yeah. So anyway, I learned a lot by doing and I was naive, and like many people who have a good experience in film, it's because they took a risk and didn't know what they weren't supposed to do. They didn't know the rules, and being out, an outsider in the world of film is usually a really strong advantage because everyone on the inside is trying to do what everyone else is doing, and therefore they don't have a breakthrough. This happens throughout the history of film. The outsider who's naive, doesn't really know what the rules are, breaks new ground. It's probably true in lots of fields. If you can, if the professor Jeff Spitz, as, it, as he is right now that I'm talking to, can send a memo to the 26-year-old Jeff Spitz that's making this film, what advice would you give him as he's, you know, filming Mayor Harold Washington and, you know, doing the research on Roosevelt University and talking to Mayor Harold Washington's peers and things of that nature. Well, the memo would say you're on the right track. Just keep strong, keep going and uh, stay close to your heart. Uh, those are things that worked 
then I still teach and share that same advice with students on a maybe practical level. Uh, I would say, um, keep working with influential, smarter people who are older than you, who can help you build a variety um, of, of programs based on the theme that you're doing. Because when you finish a one-off, a one-time only singular documentary, that's your baby. And now you have to take that baby into the world. Yeah. It's actually smart to understand that you're in a continuum. If, 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 you, if I could give that advice to myself at 26, uh, of course, it's easy to give that advice now because we have internet, we have webisodes. We have web series, we have streaming, we have the cliffhanger strategy and storytelling that's so easy to utilize. You could do it in a series of one minute pieces or a series of three minute pieces or a series of 10 minute pieces. You pick the link, you get to upload and you get to decide how you wanna distribute things in the world. And you can build community around any project of any size now. So looking backwards with this hindsight that I have is, someone in it for 35 years, uh, just say, don't think you're making a one-off. You're making a difference and you're making a decision for a career and it could last 40 years. Mm. Think about the theme that you're working in and make more the So that, that would be my advice because once we finish, I had a baby basically, and now I had to care for it. Now my focus was totally on that. People yeah. said, what are you gonna do next? I thinking, do next? I'm really still working on this thing. What am I gonna do with this baby? Um, that was really hard because I wanted to think forward as well. And people were always asking, what's your new project? What's your next project? What? And yeah. I have learned over time that you have to have um, your, your you have to have a lot of balls in the air. You've got to be juggling projects. You can't just have one. Mm. So, as we all know, uh, tragically, Mary Hill Washington passed away in 87, 1987. Um, and you were, where were you when you received the news of his passing? I was on Ashland Avenue, about two blocks north of Lake Street when I heard the news and I ran to get on the train to come downtown, I couldn't believe it. This was right around Thanksgiving. It was a dark and ugly gray day in Chicago. And I was in shock, total disbelief. And uh, of course, um, I wound up actually getting to the hospital and seeing a lot of people already there, people I knew. And all of us looked like we were in shock. Uh, I saw the ambulance. Um, I got there fast. Hmm. So uh, I didn't have any press credentials, but I walked in and I was in the room when the doctors came out and announced that he was dead. And I God, fucking couldn't believe it. I'm sorry to curse, but I was just it completely out. devastated. Yeah. Um, it was the saddest day. God. You know, I had an angel in Chicago <laughs> and no one ever would describe him that, but he was my guardian angel. Mm. And although I didn't spend time with him socially, every time I got to be with this person was magic. He was so grateful, so funny, sharp, um, insightful, uh, inspiring that it was uh, radiant and I wanted to be in that light. I wanted to stay around Harold, who wouldn't? So many people were attracted to him, including a young guy named Barack Obama who came to Chicago to be in the city where Harold Washington became mayor. You know, Barack Obama has written about this and said that he wanted to be in that place. Uh, that energy was powerful, man. And now you can see with hindsight, that it, it opened pathways for people. It transcended politics. Oprah came to Chicago. 
Who was she? Nobody knew. She blew up in Chicago. And part of it was that energy. Anything's possible here. And that now there's an opening in this town. Now, people were very excited about mixing and finding each other and common ground. And you would see that in City Hall. So to find out that all this energy around Harold and all of this magnetism that we had all felt and this idealism that just died was brutal. That's, that's intense. Um, you know, I remember my grandmother, she, my grandmother lived in Bronzeville when I was growing up. Um, and in her apartment on one wall, she had a picture of Johnny, John F. Kennedy on one wall. And on the other wall was a picture of Harold Washington. Now, at the time, I'm a little boy. I didn't know who Harold Washington was. I thought he was president. I thought he was one of the presidents of the United States. I'm like, oh, I didn't, I didn't know America had black presidents, you know? And uh, she said, no, that's Harold Washington. He was the mayor of Chicago, um, but he died. And, you know, when she said, but he died, like, I swear, I'm a, I'm a kid, you know, I'm like six, seven. I don't remember how old I am. But when she said, but he died, like, I felt the sadness in her voice, like literally as if a relative had died. That's how it felt. And, you know, this is the mid-90s at this point. So it's still kind of fresh, you know. It was only about six, seven years removed from his uh, from his passing. And I'm like, oh, you know, but I'm still a kid, so I didn't really comprehend. But that was the first time I was told who Harold Washington was because she had this picture of him in her apartment. And that picture remained there for a majority of her life. Um, so just to hear you describe it, and, you know, I've heard other residents from that era describe it. Um, I was born in 1988, so I wasn't even around when Harold Washington was alive. You know, I came after the fact. So I can't, you know, speak from a first-person account, but, you know, it's just, it's the same uh, aura every single time, you know, and it, it was like, you know, for a solid four years, there was hope in a city that's, you know, heavily racially segregated. Um, and it, like you said, that energy, you know, who's who's to say if, if Mayor Harold Washington continued to live past 87, what could have been, right? You know, what could have been? Everything is hypothetical, but what could have been? Like, how big could that have, could that hope have spread across the country, you know? Well, I speculated on it myself, and I think we got the answer in the form of a legacy. I really think that that energy was captured and channeled by a young African-American law student who decided to come to Chicago and try to be a community organizer. I think he was looking for his authentic self and he found Michelle. And I think that validated who he wanted to be, but he was drawn here by Harold Washington and Barack Obama is a direct legacy of that spirit of Harold. That's where the energy went. And you can see that this is a genuine human being. Barack Obama, like Harold, has this authentic human quality and it's humbleness at the core. It's not arrogance, it's not ego. It's a humble heart that loves people. And for all their faults, these were perfect. I don't agree with everything Harold did. I can tell you about things I don't agree with. Same with Barack. I'm not uncritical of these two, but I recognize the humanity in that and the extension of that that they provide to every other human being they encounter. They're just understanding that an open hand is important in relationships. A closed fist is not very inviting. And Harold said to me something I've never forgotten. Um, I did ask him who his role model was, who inspired him. I thought it would be some big name from the past. He said, my dad. And he said, my dad always kept an open door. Our house was open to people. We welcomed people with open arms. My dad embraced all kinds of interesting people. So as a young man, I got to look up to somebody who opened the door for lots of people. And I just wanted to be like my dad. It's really touching. I was expecting him to say Gandhi or some yeah. big name. 
Jesus <laughs> knows <laughs> dad, Roy Washington. Uh, I've never forgotten it. It's very touching. Uh, I'm here in LA, by the way, visiting my dad, uh, who's in hospice now and uh, wanting to be with my dad. So some of these things have come full circle for me. I remember being in LA telling my dad, gosh, in 1983, I'm going to go to Chicago. I think I can do this. And then my dad came to the premiere at City Hall. <laughs> it's great to meet you, Mr. Mayor. And my mom came too. And, uh, a real miracle. And it was a life-changing experience for me. And I try to translate that and channel this over the years into next generation filmmakers. Encourage them. Uh, don't just make a film. Everyone's making films, you know. Make a difference. <laughs> Think about your film as your way, making a difference. Yeah. Uh, maybe the difference will help you define what should be in your film. Maybe the difference you want at the end of the day will help you create a spirit and energy for the whole film enterprise. It isn't just shoot something and edit it and stick it up. It certainly isn't just make something and hit the send button into YouTube. I didn't grow up with that. So real people and real space was the reason for trying my hand at film. I wanted to meet people. And I knew that the camera was a bridge. I didn't think of it as a tool for anything other than meeting people and telling stories. Mm -hmm. So I had been in Hollywood and I had seen the highest level of commercial success and production up close. And I didn't see people with any sense of purpose. For the most part, I saw people who were extremely wealthy and very good at what they did and really confident that they could do it again and again and again. But purpose, yeah, that might be something they did on the side. Like, oh, I'll donate money to a good cause or I'll uh, provide some creative service in support of a good cause. Yeah. But that was to the side. They were professionals and to their credit, they were the top. And it was impressive to see their creative talents. But I didn't feel like they were people who were particularly fulfilled and satisfied. I uh, didn't feel like their lives were enviable the way that um, I was picturing myself. I wanted adventure and I wanted to be in the real world. And at that time, the 80s, your work in Hollywood meant in, behind the walls of a studio. You know, those are guarded with gates and guards for a reason. They don't want people in. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. uh, I, I was turned off by that and I wanted to be in the real world using a camera, using film in a different way. And I found that opportunity and I found people were like-minded in Chicago. You know, I'm glad that you touched on that because that was going to be my next question for you, but you pretty much just answered it all right there. Um, you know, I was going to ask you like, do you think that's the nucleus of your teaching as a professor in film and television? Like, you know, is that like the the main thing you want to hammer home with all of your students or any student of film that you encounter, whether it's in the classroom or not, you know, is purpose, you know. Um, in a nutshell. Yeah. Yeah. It is, it is have a sense of purpose that's beyond yourself. Um, you know, a lot of people have found that meaning in life for themselves comes when they serve others in some way, shape, or form. Uh, you really get to know yourself when you make some kind of a sacrifice for other people. And um, documentary is not the direction to go if you want to make money, but it is the direction to go if you want to make a difference or if you want to engage with real people and real substance, not fluff. And I, I recognize that because I had been in the world of fluff. I'd been in the world of deliver. I'd been in the world of fast bucks and that casino mentality, change, 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 change. Uh, I'm visiting here now, and of course that mentality is alive and well, and it's really just the marketplace. It's the hardcore marketplace for commercial film. And I grew up in this, and my grandfather was a producer, and I never saw him. He was too busy. Mm. Um, my dad said, when I asked him, what do you want to be when you grow up? He said, I wanted to be a dad. I said, what? What did you want to do? 
said, I wanted to have a great family. I said, are you kidding? Uh, but what, what did you want to do? He said, well, I, I, you know, I wanted to do some acting. I tried it. I, I did it. Um, then I went into business. I thought I would be a coach. I thought I wanted to be a coach. I did some coaching, but I decided I really wanted to have a good family and I wanted to use business in creative ways and um, have a good life and be your dad. It was really humbling and very, very touching. And he's a great dad. He's the all world, all everything, goat dad. Mm -hmm. uh, I know what that looks like and how that feels. And so, um, you know, I just share with students, um, you don't have to be the grandiose uh, visionary of a new world. Uh, you can be a good person and you can make really good films and you can also um, tell stories that are close to your heart and work with people who are kindred spirits and find that teamwork with people you really care about on topics that you all care about. It's incredibly gratifying. Maybe less money in it. You could wear more than one hat nowadays, and I always remind people: just keep trying to work close to your heart. That's that's the guidepost for your future and for a fulfilling, satisfying, uh, worthwhile life. Uh, and that can change. Your heart can change. Know your heart. Work close to it. That's the advice I give most students. That's beautiful. You know. Um... Harold Washington's hero was his dad. Your hero is your dad. You know, um, is that's that's a beautiful thing to hear. And I'm grateful that you two were able to meet and create something for other creatives like myself. I'm a creative professional. I'm a filmmaker. I'm a storyteller. I'm an author. I'm a novelist. A podcast. So all of that, anything creative. Um, mm -hmm. But it's just a blessing that you was able to do what you did in 1980, in the middle, in the mid-1980s, um, to capture these gold mines of wisdom uh, from Harold Washington and from his classmates at Roosevelt University to basically encourage us and inspire us for generations to come. So on behalf of everybody, your students, everybody, even if they don't tell you, I'm sure we all say the same thing, thank you for your service in this industry and telling your stories that's close to your heart with a purpose. Thank you. Yes, yes. Um, and my prayers are with you and your family um, during this time. Um, prayers of comfort for you. And, um, you know, it was, it was just definitely a blessing to have you on the show, uh, Jeff. Um, I don't underestimate it at all. You know, um, I definitely appreciate you taking the time out uh to speak with me about these things you know I, I couldn't feel the enthusiasm when you was talking to Reverend Moss about it so I was just like I gotta interview him <laughs> I gotta interview him and you know you actually just you know motivated me um I created uh I shot my first short film in 2012 it was a fictional film but I too settled into the documentary world you know um I like a lot of people allow money to cloud my mind and think that I can't do certain things you know, things like that. I actually applied to Columbia College's uh, film, Masters of Film program in 2011. I didn't get in, but I applied. And when I didn't get in, I'm like, oh, what am I going to do now? And slowly but surely, you know, I settled into my own lane. And I realized that my lane is telling stories, regardless of the medium. Um, and I remember you asked if I was going to probably make this into something bigger. And, you know, the possibilities are endless with you know, what I'm doing with sociology and, you know, I've definitely been playing around with the ideas and, you know, now things are a lot easier as opposed to 1983 when it comes to making content. But like you said, what, what's missing is the purpose. And I think that's one reason why I went so long without making anything because I forgot my purpose, but I'm remembering my purpose now and I'm grateful for that. So I don't take these moments for granted. I just want to put that on record and let you know that. Thank you. Really special. Thank you for sharing that. And I'm going to wish you the best and know that you could always contact me if you ever want to talk about anything. I'm very grateful to be part of this podcast um, to the extent that you are able to use it in different ways. Uh, I think that's fantastic. And I'm enjoying the interview. So uh, thank you for taking the time and really leading into this. Uh, it is a, a really rich subject. And, uh, Harold 
had many people close to him. And over the years, some of the same stories have been told uh, over, over and over again, because that's sort of the nature of public figures and stories about public figures. I think I was very lucky to find the man underneath the public figure and going back into his youth. That was just unique. Um, the hothouse, rough and tumble politics of Chicago doesn't allow that kind of luxury. And frankly, the journalists aren't that interested in what happened 40 years before. They're yeah. focused on now and breaking stories, breaking news, right? So I, I think it's very important that people have a chance to revisit this, this unique chapter. So I'm glad we're getting it out there. And it's so cool that you're, uh, you know, in the next generation and using all the media tools to help tell stories that are close to your heart that matter. Let's, let's keep it going. It's yes, change. Yes, sir. Absolutely. Um, yeah, one last thing, uh, the doc talk show. Uh, Tell me more about it. I, I, I saw it and I see that you've been doing it for some time. I see Rapper Moss's film is on there. Tell us more about Doc Talk Show real quick. Um, sure. There's, there's a website where you can actually see the recap videos from several shows. The Doc Talk Show is a monthly showcase of nonfiction storytellers that focuses on their motivation, who they are, why they're making the films they make. We show clips. We do it with uh, dinner and drinks in a social environment so that people can actually network and get to know one another, share a good time, have a drink, rub elbows, break bread. It's meant to be that community that is so hard to find in Chicago. And it was motivated by the 2016 election, which was so divisive, polarizing, painful, sad, depressing, and I thought, I want to be in a room with people who care about the same kind of truths that have driven me to this point, that point in my life being 2016. And I thought, I want to be around documentary filmmakers. They care. They do the digging. Uh, I was very dismayed, like everybody, by the idea of a presidential tweet, by the idea of alternative facts, by the idea of... Um, <laughs> hate speech becoming routine in politics. And the racism that I was seeing from the top after eight years of Barack Obama was just completely unacceptable. And I wanted to be in a room again with people who are like-minded, who care about truth and decency and democracy. Documentary was the way forward. And we started meeting on a monthly basis and showcasing new work and work that of course was very close to the hearts of these interesting people in Chicago. They wanted to show a clip, a trailer, a passage from a film and engage an audience in a conversation. And to do it in a social environment with low stakes, not a film festival, not a special event, but a monthly gathering. And so that's the Doc Talk Show. We've done more than 40 of these. If you go to www.thedoctalkshow.com, DocDOC.com. You can see many of these conversations. Uh, one of the most influential people in nonfiction film in the whole world today is from Chicago, and it's Gordon Quinn. He started Cartemquin Films with a couple of other college students back in the 60s. And he was a mentor to me and has been a friend and an advisor on the Doc Talk Show. We've had programs that um, Organize around a theme. Uh, one of the themes in the beginning was acts of resistance. People came, we showed films that were acts of resistance. We showed the clips, not the whole film. Mm -hmm. We talked about resistance to this new regime in 2016. And then they enjoyed the social experience so much, and I did too. We did another one the next month, and then we just kept going. Mm -hmm. uh, we managed to keep going through COVID on Zoom, like you're doing. And now we're back in a real space. If any of this interests anybody, uh, uh, September 28th, our show is called Mother Country Radicals. And it's a story by a young man who says in the 1960s, uh, early 70s, um, the most wanted woman in America by the FBI was Angela Davis. 
but Angela Davis was replaced. And the person who became the most wanted woman in America by the FBI was my mom, Bernadine Dorn. And so it's a story put together, a 10 hour podcast with a fantastic film trailer to launch it. And it's become the most, one of the most popular podcasts. It won the award for the best new audio story at the Tribeca Film Festival. And I'm uh, promoting that because the podcast host, the writer, and the um, participant in this Zaid Ayers Dorn will be coming to talk about his process on mm. September 28th at Uncommon Ground in Edgewater. It's um, 1401 West Devon. You people can find the ticket link to this on the Instagram profile page. And that's the doc, hashtag the doc talk show. So you can see lots of posting about this particular episode. It'll be September 28th. And you can also see previous postings uh, for previous shows. And at the website, there's a whole inventory and show uh, gallery. So you can just look through it, find things that might be interesting to you. Click on it, you'll see the names of the filmmakers who presented. You'll see a recap video. So it's a, I guess you'd call it a gallery of passionate people telling really significant stories very well. And we're interested in what motivates these kinds of people in Chicago to make these sacrifices, to tell these stories. And their conversations and pretty informal. I think you in particular would find these interesting. Um, in our most recent show, uh, we had um, Kevin, uh, oh gosh, why am I blanking? Um, we had four filmmakers with Gordon Quinn. Uh, and you can see that if you go to the hashtag. Okay. The Doc Talk Show. Um, yeah. It, it's been really interesting to meet people this way, and we've featured more than 240 nonfiction filmmakers so far. The link to Jeff Spitz's documentary, The Roosevelt Experiment, can be found in the description bio of this episode, as well as the link to the Doc Talk Show, which is his monthly showcase of documentary nonfiction filmmakers. I also ask that everybody listening and viewing this episode keeps Jeff Spitz's family, Team Spitz as they're called, in your prayers and send them prayers and love of comfort. If you enjoyed this podcast, whatever platform you're listening to it on right now, whether it be Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, etc., leave a five-star review and a comment. Let us know what you think. And don't forget to subscribe to our sister podcast, Mogul Motivation, from True Stories Media.